Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. This is Dr. Dan. It's 2 a.m. There is a forceful knocking on your front door. In seconds, the door is blasted open and your home is filled with shouting strangers who are well-armed, and dressed in full military gear with automatic rifles. If you were living in communist Russia, Nazi Germany, or even colonial America under British rule, seized by terror, you could not imagine anything but a painful and perhaps fatal future. Our victory in the War of Independence removed the yoke of tyranny from the shoulders of the colonists, and our nation's founders used the Constitution and the Bill of Rights to deter any future government from resurrecting any of King George's abuses of power. In a dictatorship, of course, due process protections don't exist. The government has absolutely no obligation to uphold the natural law rights of any individual and will engage in any behavior, moral or immoral, to retain power. Tyrannical regimes rely on information of any kind provided by informants who might be your neighbors or even a former friend, relative, or colleague. Once you become suspected of crimes against the government, there is no Bill of Rights to protect you. When the police show up at your door at 2 a.m., you will not be told the nature of your crime. Your dwelling will be searched, destroyed, and anything of value stolen. You will be taken to a secret prison, interrogated, probably tortured, and most likely either imprisoned under harsh conditions or killed. Several months ago, I interviewed Jerry Hawkins, retired Army officer, also retired from a successful industrial career, who started a home-based business selling sporting goods online, including filters, firearm parts, cleaning supplies, and accessories. So I want to read you his first-person account of the ATF raid on his home. And this is a quote. In the pre-dawn hours of April 14, 2001, swarms of federal agents from several agencies raided our home and property. My wife and I were confronted by agents in full tactical gear with automatic rifles. Over the course of the next eight to nine hours, dozens of agents and tons of equipment were used to search our home, outbuildings, and property. What horrendous crime could warrant such action? the unsubstantiated accusation that my home-based business was manufacturing and selling unregistered firearm parts. Based on these unsubstantiated accusations, our bank accounts were emptied, businesses shut down or crippled, 
All money was seized from the home, including the rolled coins from our bookshelf, and all electronics were seized. No firearms were seized, but parts and inventory related to the alleged items, as well as items not even on the warrant, were seized and taken. This included parts of a rain collection system, vacuum pump systems, that were taken and were cataloged as illegal firearms. Having read the civil asset forfeiture law, I believe that I would be quickly able to defend myself and have my property returned. Unfortunately, they have learned to manipulate the laws and the system so that after 18 months, no criminal charges have been filed, property has not been returned, and we have been blocked from going to court. That's the end of the quote. So, the problem here is we do not know if Jerry Hawkins is guilty of manufacturing illegal gun parts or if he's an innocent victim of ATF overreach. We do not know if the ATF seizure of his bank accounts and personal funds, the destruction of his business, and the disruption of his personal life and his ability to earn a living was justified or not. And that is precisely the problem with this incident. Eighteen months ago, after the ATF raid, Jerry Hawkins, his wife and family, are all in limbo. His guilt or innocence has never been adjudicated in a court of law. Jerry Hawkins has been denied his due process rights, as required by the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And if it could happen to them, what makes you think it can't happen to you? After our commercial break, we will return to discuss the constitutional protections of due process with Clark Neely, Senior Vice President for Legal Studies at the Cato Institute in Washington. We are back with Clark Neely, Senior Vice President for Legal Studies at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. Clark, it is an honor and privilege to have you as a guest on Freedom Forum Radio. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. I think we should begin by explaining due process rights. Uh, what are they? Where did they come from? And, and what exactly do they protect? Well, at the most basic level, uh, due process uh, is a protection against arbitrary government. It's a protection against uh, government officials who just assert the authority um, to harm you in some way by locking you up, taking your property, uh, et cetera. And uh, due process goes back uh, a long ways in our history, um, certainly at least as far as the Magna Carta um, from um, uh, 12th century um, uh, England. Um, where there was um, a what's called a law of the land provision that required uh, the sovereign, the king, um, when um, seeking to um, uh, impose his will uh, on um, uh, certain members of, um, of, you know, of English society to follow certain procedures that were deemed to lead to uh, essentially better and more just outcomes. And we can certainly get into what the details of that are. But basically, um, in a nutshell, uh, due process is what prevents the government from uh, harming uh, us or taking our property arbitrarily and requiring that they file certain procedures before they can do that. It's interesting to me that the basis of the due process is the Magna Carta, uh, of course, in Great Britain. And here, nevertheless, uh, in the pre-revolutionary period, we had an English monarch who was doing absolutely everything in contradiction to that. Well, you know, look, I mean, I think that government will always be imperfect. Uh, and um, the, the closest you can do or the best you can do um, is try to 
get sort of marginally what is the best performance out of government that you can. You want it to be uh, powerful enough that it can do the things we need government to do, uh, but of course not so powerful as to be able to tyrannize us and, vi and violate our rights. I think many of us feel like our government, the pendulum has swung too far in our society where our government is more empowered than it ought to be, um, but I'm sure we're going to get into that. Yeah, I think that's an important thing to talk about, but why don't you go over, you know, what what does Amendment 4, 5, and 6 of the Bill of Rights, which is primarily what we're talking about, what is it, what what protections does it give us? What I, People need to know, you know, what does it say in there and, and what does that mean? Right, so let's start with the Fifth Amendment, which is where uh, due process first appears, and what it requires is that um, it says that the government may not take your life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And uh, when you go to law school, for example, um, they teach you that sort of the most basic expression of due process is what's called notice and an opportunity to be heard. So if the government accuses you of a crime or says that you have committed some sort of an infraction so that they're going to impose a fine or they're going to take your car, you have a right to be notified as to what it is the government thinks that you have done that that uh, authorizes the government to, uh, uh, to to punish you or to take your stuff. And then you have an opportunity to tell your side of the story in front of a neutral decision maker um, who can act um, in, in basically in, in deciding uh, who's correct and what should happen. Uh, that is really the the, the essence of uh, due process in our society. It finds its expression in various uh, ways. Uh, so, for example, if you are accused of a crime, there's a whole set of additional procedures that come into play, but those are all in some sense an attempt to implement this basic guarantee of due process. Then the Fourth and Sixth Amendments, which are on either side uh, of the Fifth Amendment, the Fourth Amendment is very simply about preventing unreasonable searches and seizures. So limiting the government's ability to uh, invade your home, uh, your your you know your various items of property that you own, um, or to seize you bodily, to arrest you, to take you into custody. And then the Sixth Amendment is largely about what procedures the government is supposed to follow uh, when it accuses a person of a crime um, and wishes to proceed with a prosecution and, and adjudicate that uh, charge. Um, then involves things like your opportunity of, uh, to, uh, or your, your right to access to counsel, uh, to know the witnesses against you, um, the right to a public and impartial jury, et cetera. And as well as a speedy trial. And uh, of course, I mean, go over if you can a little more in a little more detail, some of these specifics in the, in the fourth, fifth and sixth amendment, people need to hear them because there's always a question is what most people don't read the constitution anyway, but, and so they have a kind of a let's put it this way, an uninformed view of what the Constitution says. But it's important to hear what exactly do those uh, those three amendments say you have the right to? Right. So the most basic, uh, the distilled essence of the Fourth Amendment is that it prohibits the government from engaging in unreasonable searches and seizures and provides that warrants shall issue only on the basis of probable cause. So the implicit in the Fourth Amendment is that, generally speaking, the government has to have a, a warrant issued by a neutral magistrate before it can search uh, your property or take you into custody. But it doesn't spell that out explicitly, and the courts have read into the Fourth Amendment, and I think reasonably so, certain 
exceptions to the general warrant requirement so that a government, for example, has to act under exigent circumstances. For example, police come to your door to interview you and they can hear somebody screaming bloody murder inside the apartment. They don't have to wait to get a warrant. They're able to enter uh, under those kinds of exigent circumstances. But the touchstone under the Fourth Amendment is that any search or seizure must be reasonable. And to be reasonable in most circumstances, it has to be authorized by a judicially issued warrant or else it won't be reasonable. That's the Fourth Amendment in a nutshell. The Fifth Amendment, um, the essence of the Fifth Amendment, I would say, is uh, two things. First, uh, the due process clause, which we discussed before, which essentially says there are certain procedures that the government has to comply with before it can uh, take you into custody, take away your stuff, uh, hold you, um, and um, uh, convict you of a crime. The um, other part of the Fifth Amendment that people tend to be quite familiar with is the part that says um, that uh, it's the double jeopardy clause. You cannot be um, uh, prosecuted for the same crime uh, twice, although unfortunately, uh, the um, uh, courts have come up with a rationale that enables the federal government to prosecute you for the same crime that you've already been prosecuted by a state. So, for example, both under state and federal law, it's illegal for felons to possess a handgun. Um, let's say that, that, that you get caught by a local police officer, they prosecute you for, for being felon in possession of a handgun, and you win, you're acquitted the federal government can still prosecute you for that same crime. That's called the dual sovereigns exception to the Fifth Amendment. I think it's a, a, a crock, uh, but the Supreme Court has um, has continued to embrace that idea. And then, of course, there's also the uh, Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Famously, uh, you hear people talk about pleading the fifth. I take the fifth, meaning I'm not going to answer these questions on the grounds that it might incriminate me. And then the Sixth Amendment, uh, as we discussed, um, is basically mostly about trial procedure. It's the right to be notified of what the charges are against you, to call witnesses, to have counsel for your defense, the right to a speedy and public trial before an impartial jury in the location where the crime is alleged to have happened, um, and all of this. And we should really spend a lot of time talking about juries. I won't try to do it now. Uh, but all of this was designed to put citizen participation at the very heart of the administration of criminal justice and to ensure that the government cannot punish you until it convinces 12 people drawn more or less randomly from your community that you are guilty of a crime and deserve punishment. Um, unfortunately, jury trials are now practically extinct on American soil and the founder's genius to put citizens between us and the power of the government has been almost completely uh, undermined by coercive plea bargaining, which is the way that most criminal charges are now resolved in this country. And I think that's a total travesty. That's kind of interesting about uh, the jury, because you're absolutely right. A jury is 12 citizens that stand between you and your accusers and your government. And they're supposed to be a jury of your peers. I don't know how close we ever come to actually doing that. But nevertheless, these are people, common people of some character who uh, can really be there to judge. What do you think about jury nullification? Oh, it was absolutely central to the founder's understanding of uh, how juries are meant to operate. I don't particularly like that term. I understand that it's sort of the common term that's used to describe. Um, the reason I don't like it is because actually juries don't have any power to nullify a law. Judges do, but juries don't. Only, the only power that a jury has is the power to acquit 
uh, a defendant uh, for whatever reason they want. And, they, and, and juries can do that for whatever reason. Uh, maybe they just don't think the government proved its case. Maybe they think that you were singled out in some way or that the techniques that the government used in order to um, uh, you know, bring witnesses against you uh, were unseemly, et cetera. Um, another way to describe it is jury independence is essentially the idea that it is ultimately up to the jury uh, whether you should be convicted of a crime. And very much contrary to sort of the modern conception, I absolutely believe, and I think there's an abundant history that makes it clear that this is a part of our heritage, that jurors were never, criminal jurors were never meant to be pure fact finders, which is how we think of them today. That the only legitimate function of a criminal juror is to say, you know, did this defendant use that knife to stab this victim? And that's the only thing that's any of their business. No, absolutely not. That's a, that's a complete misconception of the role of the jury in my view. Historically, jurors would, uh, uh, be part of the fact-finding process. In fact, they would be the fact-finders, but equally important, um, historically, jurors were there to prevent injustice, to, to look at the entire circumstances of the case and decide whether or not uh, uh, it made sense to prosecute you. And one of the things that the government would have to uh, uh, you know, prove to jurors or, or convince them of is that whatever punishment the government proposed to inflict upon conviction would be just. And if the jurors did not feel that the punishment would be just. So for example, in England, even relatively petty thefts were punishable by deaths. Um, and, Brit and English juries routinely acquitted people who were self-evidently guilty because they didn't believe that death was a reasonable punishment. That heritage absolutely crossed the Atlantic Ocean to here in America. And it took judges and prosecutors the better part of 150 years to stamp out the idea of jury independence, which they have done very thoroughly, so that now all we have is this kind of neutered form of a jury that doesn't do anything more than find facts. And that has nothing to do, it, is, it could not be more dissimilar from a founding era uh, jury. So to answer your question, jury nullification was meant to be absolutely integral uh, to the um, uh, the conception, the founding era conception of a criminal jury, and we have almost completely purged it from the system, much to our cost. You know, it, this is a, an important part of, the, of our discussion because uh, what we're talking about is how do you mitigate government power versus the people? That's that's really what we're what we're talking about here. And obviously, the more powerful government is, the more protection we need, the less we need the government to be themselves nullifying everything that protects individual citizens. For instance, you we were talking about the, the Fifth Amendment, and uh, what comes to mind uh, is, of course, that property will not be taken without just, let's say, without just compensation, but will not be taken except for public use. And of course, we, we had recently the Kelo versus Connecticut case, in which the city of New London took property and gave it to a developer, which, of course, subsequently uh, he went bankrupt and that project was never finished. But to me, uh, of course, that, and that's, what, that's where the Supreme Court made a decision in favor of the city and against the, the property owners. Do you have a comment on that? Well, I was actually one of the trial counsel in the Kelo case, and so I was uh, uh, deeply involved. Uh, Suzette Kelo is a good friend of mine, as were some of the other plaintiffs in the case. Uh, you know, unfortunately, I think this is an example of something that I suspect we're going to talk about more in a few moments, which is the the, the way that, that sort of um, judges sort of incrementally uh, allow the government to um, invade our constitutional rights, it doesn't usually happen all at once. Instead, the government comes in and makes an argument for why they should get one exception and then another and another. Um, and so you get a situation where you have 
the Fifth Amendment that specifically says that property, private property, shall not be taken for public use except with just compensation. The courts have interpreted that to require not just just compensation, but also that the taking itself must be for a public use. Now, that seems to be pretty clear. You would think that was fairly clear what that means. That would be like a highway, um, you know, or maybe a public university or even a hospital. Uh, but what's happened is that over a period of time, the government has gotten increasingly creative in terms of what could be considered um, a public use. And in the Kilo case, it kind of culminated um, in this idea that if it provides any public benefit, then it is a public use. And they argued that taking um, the homes and businesses of a bunch of working class uh, people and turning that property over to a developer so they could build a four-star hotel and $600,000 townhomes for Pfizer executives might not be a public use, but it would provide a public benefit. That's close enough. Um, and unfortunately, the Supreme Court five to four went along with that in the Kelo decision in 2005. And that's a great example of how a fairly clear constitutional limit on government power can be eroded to the point of meaninglessness by a judiciary that's willing to go along with increasingly creative and power uh, aggrandizing interpretations that are that are uh, urged by the government. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The rights to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Everything gonna be 